Well, if you've got a Bible this morning, open with me to Luke chapter 1, is where we're going to be today. Luke chapter 1, we'll pick up in verse 46 and read down through verse 56 together. Uh, you may, this, this song may be titled in your Bible, Mary's Song of Praise or the Magnificat. All right, and so in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 46, we'll read through verse 56 together. Uh, if you don't have a copy with you, you can find it on the screen behind me as we read it together this morning. But Luke begins in Luke chapter 1, verse 46, by writing, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is His name. And His mercy is for those who fear Him. From generation to generation, He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to His offspring forever. This is God's Word. You know, the season of Advent is a four-week-long four season that um, starts usually the last Sunday in November and runs through Christmas Eve. And it's a time in which we do what the very song that we sang earlier this morning, uh, we, we do that very thing. When in Joy to the World, we speak of every heart preparing Him room. Right? Preparing room for the birth of Christ. To celebrate the birth of Christ and the light and the hope and the joy and the peace and the love that is found in Him. And so this season of Advent, we've been preaching a series of messages entitled Long Expected Jesus. And the title of the series comes from the title of a song written by Charles Wesley many, many years ago when he writes, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And in one of the verses of that hymn, Wesley writes these words. He says, Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. And when Karen and I were first married, uh, I, I remember um, receiving all kinds of gifts, but one of the gifts that we received was like a package of, a variety package of all kinds of placemats, all right? Because, right, everybody needs placemats for certain holidays and normal days, even though we don't stop using them when we had children because they were just too much of a mess and fuss. But I remember one of those sets of placemats um, was a table runner along with the placemats, and they were festive Christmas placemats and a table runner. And so they were very vibrant colors, like right traditional red and greens. It had a holly and mistletoe stitched into it, right? It had some deep, deep blues kind of standing that, that everything else stood off in contrast to. The colors were incredibly vibrant. And across those placemats, in the middle of those placemats, was stitched the word joy. And so we'd pull them out at Christmas and we would use those, set them on the table and we would eat, right? And then inevitably, once we started having children, we realized children don't keep food on the plate. They just spread it all over the table, including the placemats. And so it was like eat and then wash and then eat and then wash. That's why we don't use them anymore. It's just too much work, right? But eat and then wash and then eat and then wash. And over the years of that repetitive cycle of eating and washing and eating and washing, we'd put them away, we'd pull them back out and put them away and pull them back out. We began to notice several years into that process that those colors which used to just pop off of the table in their reds and greens and blues and hollies and mistletoes and the word joy were now beginning to fade. 
right? It, was, it, it wasn't quite as vibrant of a color of red, or the yellows weren't as true and as rich any longer. And as I looked at them one day, I realized right, that in the same way that those placemats over the course of time, because of what they have experienced, have a tendency to fade, the vibrancy fades, so also at times does our joy. So that word that was embroidered or stitched across the center of those placemats, joy, had begun to fade over the course of time because of everything that it had gone through. And so often our joy does the same. So this, listen, this morning is, uh, is, is we lit the, the joy candle, the pink candle here on the Advent wreath. And this morning as we consider our joy, I wonder if there are any among us this morning who would just be honest enough and saying, you don't have to raise your hand, but in the, even in the privacy of your own heart of saying, yes, my joy has faded. It looks like those placemats from your home. Right? For some of us, our joy may be like a raging hot fire, like one of these candles burning up here. And for that, we ought to give thanks. But for some of us, it's like smoldering ashes in our heart that's struggling to stay lit. For some of us, our joy is like the beams, the radiant beams of the sun penetrating deep down into our hearts. Others of us, it's like a strand of Christmas lights that only has one bulb that's just kind of flickering. Right? That might be what our joy feels like today. Some Christians, even at Christmas, may resonate with the psalmist in Psalm 4 whenever he writes these words in verse 7, You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In other words, God, I have more joy here because of You than whenever the harvest comes in plentiful, the vats are full of grapes, and the storehouses are full of grain. I've got more joy in You than the workers at the harvest. While for others, they feel like Psalm 22 when the psalmist writes the very words that were on the lips of Jesus, even at the crucifixion, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry out day by day, but you do not give answer and by night, but I find no rest. See, on either end of that spectrum, whether your joy is burning brightly or whether it is barely flickering, I want you to know that this season of Advent can do something to it. It can either, for those who feel like their joy is asleep, it can awaken it. And for those who feel like it's awake, it can amplify it. Make it stronger even. But how does that come to be? Listen, in Luke chapter 1, we find the events leading up to the birth of Jesus. And in Luke's Gospel, he's from the very outset of his Gospel account in chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, he says he's composing an orderly account for a guy by the name of Theophilus. Right? And so when he's writing this orderly account, what Luke is doing, he wants Theophilus to know that what he has heard is accurate and what he has heard is true. He's trying to persuade Theophilus of the validity of Christianity centered upon the person of Jesus. So Luke's not just recording history, right? Like any other history book that we might read, but he's recording history and he's ordering it not only historically but theologically in order to persuade Theophilus of the accuracy and validity of Christ. So as we look at his account, we're not just meant to dissect words and phrases, but to understand what Luke is arguing for. What he's trying to persuade Theophilus of. And here in chapter 1, I believe he's arguing for a particular response to the coming of Jesus. 
that we ought to respond in a particular way, in a certain way. And if we want our joy to be amplified or awakened, either one, this Christmas, we must learn to respond the way that Luke is arguing for in Luke chapter 1. And what I believe Luke is arguing for is this, is that in the coming of Jesus, the way that we ought to respond to the announcement of His conception and the announcement that He would one day be born is with this, is by magnifying the Lord to magnify the Lord in verse 46 I believe Luke puts Mary forward as an example of how we ought ought to respond how Theophilus ought to respond and by extension how we ought to respond to the announcement of Jesus in verse 46 Mary says my soul magnifies the Lord magnifies the Lord. Now listen, church, there are two ways you can go about magnifying something, right? You can magnify something through a microscope. Now if you magnify something through a microscope, you take it and you put it on the slide and you slide it under that microscope and you begin to peer through the eyeglass at whatever it is that you're looking at. And what a microscope does is it takes something that is very, 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 very small and it causes it to appear to be very, 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 very large. Like lice. Ah, or a bed bug. Right? You put one of those jokers under a microscope and it looks like Independence Day, right? Will Smith fighting aliens in a F sixteen. Like that's what it looks like. It looks like, you know, the, the thing coming out of Sigourney Weaver's stomach in that movie many, many years ago. That's what a mice a, a mice, a lice or a bed bug looks like under a microscope. It takes this thing that's you can barely see with the human eye. And it causes it to be blown up outside of its normal proportions. The other way you can magnify something is through a telescope. And what a telescope does is it allows you to see far off into the distance. It allows you to peer over the horizon out into space and to be able to see things out there that are massive and large and grand and great and glorious, magnificent, but you can't see them with your naked eye. But through a telescope, you're able to see those stars. You're able to see those planets. You're able to see the burning brilliance of even galaxies that lie beyond ours all through that lens of a telescope. And what it does is it takes something that is way far away, transcendent, beyond us, and it brings it in and causes it to be seen as it actually is. So which one of those ways is Mary magnifying the Lord? Is she taking something that's minuscule and small and causing it to be seen as something bigger than it actually is? Or is she magnifying the Lord by taking He who is transcendent and beyond us and bringing Him close to ca- and causing Him to be seen as He actually is in her own mind, in her own heart, in her own affections, in her own commitments, in her own priorities, in her loves and loyalties. It's like a telescope, isn't it? That here's God. God Himself. That no human eye has ever beheld. In fact, he tells Moses in the Old Testament, uh, you can't see me face to face because it's going to burn your face off. So I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass by. You can see my backside glory when I pass by. 
But here's God, and Mary says, I'm magnifying God. He's big in my mind. He's big in my thoughts. He's big in my commitments. He's big in my affections. I'm not taking something that is very small and making it very large. I'm taking something that is far removed from me and bringing it close. But how is she doing that? Notice what she says in the next line in verse 47. Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Now, in your English Bibles, in my English Bible, this particular passage is typeset differently than the rest of the narrative that lies around it. You know why? Because it reads like a song and a song reads like poetry. And in poetry, there are various types of what's called parallelism, where two lines work together to convey a meaning. Okay, so these two lines work in tandem with one another. And one of those types of parallelism is called synthetic parallelism, where the second line completes or expands the thought of the first line. Right, so you got the first line says something, then the second line either expands that thought, carries it forward, or completes it, closes the loop on that thought. And I believe that this is the type of parallelism present in the first two lines of Mary's song when she says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And I believe that she's closing the loop on that thought by saying this, that my soul magnifies the Lord by rejoicing in God my Savior. That the way in which I'm magnifying God and making Him big as He is in my thoughts and big in my heart and big in my commitments and big in my mind is by rejoicing in Him. Finding my joy in Him. And listen church, if you want to awaken or amplify your joy this Christmas, it only comes this way. By learning to magnify the Lord by finding your joy in God, by making the business of your life the magnification of God, by finding your deepest and highest joy in Him and determining in your heart today that you will no longer settle for lesser joys. You no longer settle for knockoff imitations. But that you will make the magnification of the Lord the business of your life, that He would be big and seen to be big in your mind, in your heart, in your life, in your time, in your priorities. You say, well, what, how, why, why do you say that? Listen, every single one of us in this room, we seek joy by magnifying something in our lives. We're all magnifying something. C.S. Lewis in his book, um, the, the Surprised by Joy, when he speaks about the nature of joy, listen to what he says. He says, joy is a byproduct. Its very existence presupposes that you desire not it, but something other and outer. In other words, what Lewis is saying is this, that joy doesn't come from our desire and pursuit of joy itself. But joy comes from our desire and pursuit of something else, something that we deem to be worthy of our time, worthy of our affections, worthy of our commitments, priorities, love, loyalty, and allegiance. This is why you might ask someone the question, what is it that brings you joy? Right? Because joy doesn't bring joy in and of itself. It's not an end. It's not a means by which you use to pursue an end. It is an end through which you, by, or, 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 that you're pursuing through other means, essentially. 
is what Lewis is saying. That's the nature of joy. That's why you might ask, when you get to know someone, say, what makes you happy? What do you enjoy? What, what do you rejoice in? What brings you joy? And listen, church, so often, because we're all seeking joy by magnifying something, so often we're putting other things under the microscope to try to make them become something that they are not for us. Right? We take houses and put them under the microscope. Or we take cars and we put them under the microscope. We put hobbies under the microscope. We put vacations and televisions and gaming systems and sporting goods and academic accomplishments, our career advancement, our shoes, our clothes, or a comfortable retirement. And we take that and we put it under the microscope and all of a sudden, it's big in our heads. It's big in our hearts. We're magnifying it because we believe in it. We're going to find our joy. And every Christmas, listen, this is so relevant right now, because every Christmas we're told to make it a December to remember, aren't we? There are marketing schemes and marketing ploys that tell us you will find joy by taking this Lexus, right? That's who has that campaign, December to remember. Take this Lexus and put it under the microscope and it becomes big. For some of you, it's not a Lexus. It's like an F-250 jacked up with all kinds of rims and all kinds, you know. So some of us, substitute whatever you want in there. But you put it under the microscope. Maybe it's a new piece of jewelry, right? Whatever it is, you put it under the microscope and you make it really big in your head, really big in your heart. And yet... Our experience tells us right, that our best joys, they're not found in things, but they're found in people. They're found in relationship. If you don't believe me, listen, go and, do, go, go and find a child who was raised in a home in which their parents put career advancement under the microscope. And so they became, right, as, as they put career advancement on the microscope, all of their hours, all their discretionary time, all their discretionary energy went toward career advancement, climbing the runs, making more and more money. And as a result, they had the opportunity then to try to buy the love of their children. Right? And so their children got everything they ever wanted for Christmas. Right? Everything they ever wanted for their birthday. They got the pony on the seventh birthday with the pink bow in its hair in the backyard. Right? They got everything they ever wanted. Anytime, anywhere, any day. They got everything they ever wanted, but they were missing the one thing that they needed, which was the the, the tenderness of a mother or the nearness of a father because they had put the microscope over career advancement and begun to pursue that. And so while these children had all kinds of shallow joy from all these things that they had received, they never had deep joy. And they ended up in counseling for a very long time because their parents tried to buy their love with things rather than giving themselves to their children. You know that to be true in your experience. That our deepest joys don't come from stuff, but it comes through people. And so if that's true, then it stands to reason that the highest joy that you can experience in life will only come through the highest person, God Himself. That's the only place 
that you can turn to awaken or amplify your joy. Jonathan Edwards said it this way. He said, God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. And the enjoyment of Him is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends, listen, I love the way he says this, are but shadows. But the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. So if you want to awaken or amplify your joy this Christmas, listen, take all the stuff out from underneath the microscope and fix the telescope upon God. Upon who He is. Upon what He's done in Christ. Fill your mind. Let, make Him loom large in your thoughts. Make Him loom large in your affections, in your time, in your priorities. Mary responds to the announcement that she's conceived by the Holy Spirit by saying, my soul magnifies the Lord by rejoicing in God my Savior. Now in the time that we've got left this morning, I want to give you four. I'm going to have to do it quickly, I know. I want to give you four. Four ways to magnify the Lord by rejoicing in Him from this passage. And the first one is this. Is that we ought to rejoice or find joy in the economy of God. Rejoice in the economy of God. In verses 51-53, to Mary says, He's shown strength with His arm. He's scattered the proud in their thoughts. Uh, the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. I find it fascinating in this passage where Mary's singing about the economy of God and how it is upside down from the economy of man. But what God has basically done here, what Mary is rejoicing in is the fact that God has flipped the script because the script that man writes for their economy is to place significant value on the mighty and on the rich and over the course of the last five years on the proud and arrogant and boastful. But God, whenever He flips the script in His economy, He places significant value on the humble and on the poor, and on the hungry. He says he's, he's, he's torn down the mighty and raised up the humble. The rich He has sent away empty, but the hungry He's filled with good things. God's economy is 180 degrees from man's economy. And when God chooses to redeem His people, He doesn't say this. Listen, He doesn't tell all the rich and all the powerful and all the influential, hey, you guys come to the front of the line. Rather, He says to the weak and to the poor and to the humble, you come to the front of the line. It's the poor and the powerless, the forgotten about that He calls to the front. And so what that means for you and I is this. Is that the one thing that you need to be saved is nothing. But unfortunately, it's the one thing most people don't have. Because we've always got something we're trying to put forward. We've always got something that we're trying to bring to the table. 
God by no means sends the hungry or the hurting or the broken or the confused or the lonely away in favor of those who have it all together, think they have it all together, know all the answers, think they know all the answers. Those who are well liked by everyone and seemingly have no flaws. Rather, God receives those who know that they can bring nothing to the equation. They bring nothing to the table other than their sin. And He rejects those who try to bring anything themselves. I love the way that Isaac Watts, the old hymn writer, said this many, many years ago in a song called I Boast No More. He wrote these words, No more, my God, I boast no more of all the duties I have done. I quit the hopes I held before to trust the merits of Thy Son. The best obedience of my hands dares not appear before Thy throne, but faith can answer Thy demands by pleading what my Lord has done. No more, my God, no more, my God, I boast no more. And the reason, church, that this is a reason to rejoice is because it means that you and I don't have to do anything to impress God. Nothing to impress Him. And some of us have spent all of our lives trying to do that very thing. Trying to build our resume before God. Our resume through our promotions, our possessions, our charity, our appearance, our dress size, our academics, our athletics, our precision in doctrine. Right? That arrogance of attitude that I know more than anyone else. He's saying, you must accept me because I've got more degrees. I've got more uh, medals. I've got more awards. I've got a thinner waist. I've been more successful. More than, more than, more than, more than. And God says, none of that matters. All that stuff you've been putting under the microscope. And in fact, you not only need to get, take that stuff out, out, out from under the microscope, but get rid of the microscope. <laughs> because the microscope is your very problem. Because some of us are putting our own achievements up under the microscope and making those big in our eyes and trying to rejoice in them. And what we find is that whenever we fail, our joy flies out the window because our joy was rooted in what we'd accomplished, not what God had done on our behalf. He humbles the proud church, exalts the humble. His economy is worthy of our joy. Find joy in it. Second of all, Rejoice or find joy in the holiness of God. In the holiness of God. In verses 48 to 49, Mary says this. She says, For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Mary says that God's name, and by referring to his name, she's talking about his reputation. That which precedes him. That his reputation is holy, it's distinct, it's set apart, it's unique, it's different, it's above. No one goes toe-to-toe with God. Right? No one puts the gloves on and gets into the octagon with God and says, you and I, we're going to go toe-to-toe and it's going to be a draw. That's not how this thing works. That God is above and beyond everyone and everything. He's distinct and set apart and holy. And Mary says one of the ways in which he shows forth his holiness and the holiness of his reputation is by the great things that he's done for me. Now what are the great things that God had done for Mary? Here's where it gets really good. See, Mary's story stands in a long line of Old Testament stories about God exercising His might, God exercising His power, and carrying out His promise by bringing about miraculous conceptions. 
You're like, what are you talking about? In Genesis chapter 21, God opens the womb of the barren Sarah to conceive and bear a son through whom the promise of God would be perpetuated and his name would be Isaac. In Genesis 25, God opens the womb of the barren Rebekah to conceive and bear a son through whom the promise would be perpetuated and his name would be Jacob. In Genesis 30, God opens the womb of the barren Rachel to conceive and bear a son through whom the promise of God would be perpetuated and his name would be Joseph. In Judges 13, God opens the womb of the barren Manoah's wife. We don't know her name, just that she was Manoah's wife, who was barren to conceive and bear a son who would be the deliverer of God's people, and his name would be Samson. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, God opens the womb of the barren Hannah to conceive and bear a son that would serve as the last judge in the line of the judges and a prophet among the people of Israel, and his name would be Samuel. See, throughout the Old Testament, the barrenness of these women, as one commentator said, is the sign that God has intervened in history to permit the birth of this child. And this child is an essential element in the continuation of the people of God. So over and over and over again, God is perpetuating His promise and perpetuating His promise by miraculously opening the wombs of these barren women. Then in Luke chapter 1, God opens the womb of the barren Elizabeth to conceive and to bear a son. And his name would be John the Baptist. And then God opens the womb of Mary, the virgin, the one who is barren par excellence. Never known a man. To conceive by the Holy Spirit and bear a son that would save His people from their sins. And His name would be Jesus. See, Jesus is the one child to which all these other children pointed. Jesus was born to a mother who had no reason to conceive, for she was a virgin. She brings, in, in so doing, He brings the culmination and fulfillment, the string of these barren births that carried forward the promise of God. What promise? Here's a promise, I believe, that, she's, that, 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 that all, all of this perpetuation is referring to is the one that's made in Genesis chapter 3. Because in Genesis chapter 3, whenever our first parents sin. They take of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They eat of that tree and their eyes are open and they recognize they are naked and try to cover themselves with fig leaves. God comes to find them in the cool of the garden or in the cool of the day in the midst of the garden. And when He finds them, He asks, what is this that you have done? Right? And they begin to give Him the report. And the man says, the woman made me do it. The woman says, the snake made me do it. And so God starts with the snake and then goes back to the man. And so He tells the, he tells the snake... He says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the offspring of the woman. Between you and the, your seed and the seed of the woman. And that there is offspring from a woman who is coming. That, and you will strike his heel, but he will strike your head. In other words, he will de- the, the serpent would deliver right, a, a blow that would take down this man, this seed, this offspring, but ultimately in the striking of his heel, that this man would crush the head of the snake. He would crush the head of the serpent. And God had made this promise that this, this offspring would come through a woman. Now listen, I didn't notice this until this week. I've been reading this text for a very long time. didn't notice this until this week. This is maybe in a little bit of a side, but you can humor me for a moment. 
But in Genesis chapter 3, if you go back and read it, notice God doesn't follow the normal line of identifying the offspring as the offspring of a particular man. In their day and time, whenever you read the genealogies, it was like so-and-so begat so-and-so, and so-and-so begat so-and-so. And it was always the husband begatting the firstborn son or another son, or another son. It was always carried forward in this line of patriarchal succession that came from the father to his sons. But that's not what he says in Genesis chapter 3. He says it would be the offspring, not of a man, but of a woman. And I believe that even then, God was planting the seed for the way in which His Son would come into the world. Because the only one who would do any begetting there would be God Himself as the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary, conceives in her womb, and that she would give birth to the very second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ. Now this promise was embedded deeply in the Jewish people's hearts and minds. So as they looked and longed for the one who was promised, can you imagine each time God miraculously intervened and opened the barren womb of a woman, they thought, maybe, maybe this is the one. 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 But time and time and time again, it wasn't until it was. Until it was. Until that offspring, that seed, stands forth in the womb of a virgin. How different, how distinct. Mary says, he's done this great thing for me. Holy is his name. His reputation precedes him because he doesn't follow the normal course of events. Listen, church, what great things has God done in your life that would cause you to stand back and rejoice in Him. And let me give you a hint. One of them at the very top of the list ought to be what He did for Mary. Rejoicing in the holiness of God. Third, rejoice in the mercy of God. In the mercy of God. In verses 54 to 55, Mary says her rejoicing is rooted in the fact that the Lord has remembered His promise. Mary says that she's, this joy that she has is coming out of right, this promise that God has remembered. And this promise in particular here that he's re- she's referring to is in verses 54 and 55 of Luke chapter 1 where she writes, or she sings, and Luke writes, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers Abraham and to His offspring forever. See, what Mary says is that when she talks about God remembering, she doesn't mean that at any point He forgot. Right? It's like God was walking along one day and like, you know, a, a bird flew at Him in the back of the head and like triggered something there. And Oh yeah, I, I forgot that I had promised to be merciful to Abraham and his offspring forever. It's not that He ever at one, any time forgot, but the word remember in the Bible oftentimes carries this willful, volitional action with it. So that to remember something isn't just to recall that information, but it's to act on that information. And so when God remembers His promise, He's acting on the very thing that He pledged to Abraham and to His offspring forever. And so what is it that God had pledged to Abraham that Mary is now rejoicing in? Right? Because Mary also noticed, she doesn't, when she's rejoicing in in, in this remembrance, she's not thinking necessarily of God's faithfulness. Because she doesn't say God remembered 
his faithfulness to Abraham, what does he say? God remembered his mercy. His mercy. This is what the Lord remembered. This is what God is acting on in the conception of this child in my womb. God is being merciful to us. He's being merciful to his people. He's being merciful to me, Mary says. But in what way was God being merciful as he fulfilled the promise he made to Abraham? Back in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, God gives Abraham a covenant that he enters into with him and about land and seed and blessing. And then in Genesis chapter 15, he ratifies that covenant with a ceremony. Some of you have heard me talk about that ceremony before, in which there would have been done in the ancient world, in which two kings, two people in power would have come together in order to ratify this, this covenant they were making with each other. And what they would do is they would take small animals, small woodland creatures or birds of the air or something, and they would cut those animals in half, right? From head to toe or head to tail, right? And they would put one side, one, one part of the carcass on one side. This is like, you're like, man, this is Christmas, right? One part of the carcass on one side, the other part of the carcass on the other side. And then those two kings, they would pass through that and they would pledge to one another, we will fulfill our oath to one another and should we not fulfill our oath to one another, be it done unto us. Right? May this, what we've done to these small woodland creatures or these birds, right, be done to us if we fail to fulfill our oath. So God establishes His arrangement. He sets up the birds, lines the walkway with them, and then He does something phenomenal. He causes Abram to fall into a deep sleep. So Abraham is over here slumbering on the couch, and God shows up in the form of a smoking pot, and He passes through the animals twice. Once for Himself, and once for Abraham. To say, Abraham, be it done unto me if I should ever fail to remember my covenant to you. And Abraham, be it done unto me if you should ever fail to remember your covenant with me. See, grace, church, is God's unmerited favor. It's a gift that He gives. But you know what mercy is? It's God withholding that which we justly deserve. And when she says, right, he's remembered his mercy that he swore to Abraham. I believe she's going all the way back to Genesis 15 and saying, the mercy of saying, be it done unto me, if you or your offspring should ever forget the covenant that I've made with you here today and should ever abandon that covenant, be it done unto me. And in the conception of Jesus in her womb, she knew, based upon what the angel had told her earlier in Luke chapter 1, that she was bearing the very Son of God, the Messiah, who would deliver His people from their sins. She may not have known how that was going to come about, but she knew that it was a part of that promise that God had made to Abraham back there. And we who are on the other side of the cross see exactly how it was fulfilled. Because where was it done unto God? It was done unto Him at the cross. His mercy displayed for us. Rejoice in the mercy of God, church. And then finally, last one, rejoice in the blessing of God. Mary says on multiple occasions, in fact, Elizabeth 
says these words that Mary is blessed. Mary says the words that she is blessed. He says from now on in verse 48 that this humble servant would be called blessed by every generation that would come after. Now, I want you to consider something. When Mary is facing this reality, she says, every generation that comes after is going to call me blessed. Not, in, not because I was immaculately conceived, because that's not true. She was conceived by a man and a woman. She was not conceived sinless. That's not the reason that we call her blessed. We call her blessed because in her womb she carried the very Son of God. And through her came the promise of deliverance for God's people. That's why she's called blessed. But I want you to consider, consider What's going on in the background as Mary makes this declaration? In verses 26 to 45 of Luke 1, we find the context out of which this song arises. I'm not going to read it for you. I'm going to summarize it for you. Mary receives news from the angel Gabriel in verses 26 to 38 that she would be with child from the Holy Spirit and that the child she would carry and bear would be the Son of God, the promised Messiah, and that her relative Elizabeth would give birth in her old age as well. Mary, in verse 38, receives this as good news from the angel Gabriel. Even though she's a little bit troubled, how can this be? I've never known a man. She receives this declaration from the angel as good news. Then Mary travels to visit Elizabeth, and upon her arrival, when she meets Elizabeth, something phenomenal happens. Those, the baby in Elizabeth's womb, John, and the baby in Mary's womb, Jesus, right, they start having a dance party. Right? They're all jumping around. John's rejoicing because he knows Jesus is over here, and I'm over here, and it's about to happen, and here we come right so there's something going on there and then the news that news from the angel and the confirmation from elizabeth as the angels had said becomes the kindling for mary's joy despite all human evidence to the contrary what do you mean all human evidence to the contrary she can say i'm blessed by god and every generation that comes after me will call me blessed despite all the human evidence to the contrary, and if you consider, broaden out the scope of the context a little bit and go into Matthew's Gospel, one of the things we're told in Matthew's Gospel that at this same time, that whenever the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary, she conceives Jesus in her womb. Joseph knew that wasn't his baby. She had a fiancé who was considering abandoning her putting her away silently, which in those days meant, though they were not not yet married, there was a, a more of an official status than what we would consider to be an engagement, and so it would have been an actual divorce of putting her away. At that same time, right, she knew as an unwed mother that her, how her community would view her. Oftentimes they would be ostracized. And she knew that the law of Moses called for her death. But despite all this evidence to the contrary, humanly speaking, she says, I am blessed and every generation will call me blessed. Because Mary believed that she was blessed in the coming of this child despite her outer circumstances. The question for you this morning, church, is do you believe the same? Do you believe the same? 
that God has blessed you richly, whether or not your career ever advances, whether or not you ever get the kind of children that you wanted by putting them through the paces, whether or not you ever get the grandchildren that you wanted, whether or not you ever get the shoes or the clothes or the car or the house, whatever it is, the accomplishments that you wanted, the vocation that you wanted, whether or not you ever get those things, do you believe that despite all the circumstances of your life, that God has blessed you in the sending of His Son? Rejoice in that blessing this Christmas. Rejoice in His mercy. Rejoice in His holiness. Rejoice in His economy. And as you do, all of that rejoicing is building to cause God to be big in your mind, big in your heart, big in your thoughts, big in your affections as you magnify Him. you want to awaken or amplify joy in your life this Christmas, learn to magnify Him by rejoicing in Him. And there are at least those four good reasons to rejoice. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we thank You for joy that comes from Your Holy Spirit. That it indeed is a fruit of His that He's bearing in the lives of Your children. And for those who find it absent this morning, Father, or those who find it asleep in their lives this morning, I pray that You would help them respond to Jesus in the same way that Mary does. By saying, my soul magnifies Him. That He's worthy of my highest thoughts. He's worthy of my deepest commitments. That He's worthy of all my affections, loyalties, loves, and allegiances, my time, my priorities. He's worthy of all that. And for those who have never crossed the line of faith and put their confidence in Jesus, but they've all their life, they've had something else they're putting under the magnifying glass, thinking that that's going to be a lasting source of joy for them, Father. I pray that You'd help them clean the closet of all those slides and that magnifying glass and replace it with a telescope that sees You in all of Your glory and rejoices in You. To place their confidence in Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the promise to do away with Satan and sin and death, who is the fulfillment of the promise to bring forth God's mercy to His, your mercy to your people. And to know that all of that comes without them having to impress you or put on a show. But they can stop boasting in anything other than what you've done for them. And they never again have to boast in anything that they've tried to do for you that they would know they are blessed even if their life is falling apart at the seams. Even if the circumstances of their life say that there is no reason for them to consider themselves blessed. That as they put their confidence in Jesus, they would know your blessing and rejoice in it. So for those who have yet to cross the line of faith and place their confidence in your Son, I pray that they would 
they would turn from trying to find joy in all these other empty wells, as Jeremiah says, and they would find it from the one true source of living water. They would repent of sin and trust in Jesus. And for those who have, Father, but for their joy that needs to be amplified this Christmas, I pray you bring them back to these four reasons why you are worthy of their magnification. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.